Merry Christmas, church. Man, it is so good to come together and sing some of those songs. You know, we'll praise his name forever. Church, how many of you are excited for that truth that someday we will stand in glory forever praising his name? Is that great? Yeah. I love that song. I love that truth. And and it makes me wonder, it gets me thinking, what's in a name? What's in a name? These days, there's a lot of interest in our family trees. And with sites like genealogy.com and anthropology.com and and 23andMe, ancestry.com, and I don't endorse all those. Some of them have kind of uh, shady places they might want to do with your family lineage, but There's no shortage of opportunity to explore our genealogies, to explore our family trees and discover where we came from. And it can be fun to investigate our family tree. You know, what are we going to discover? Is there nobility in my background? Is there somebody famous? Is there somebody notorious? What am I going to find out? And finding out about our ancestors might tell us a little bit more about ourselves. And for me, just going one generation back, it got kind of confusing. I mean, when I was a little, little kid, it was really confusing in my family because my mom's sister, Eileen, had married a guy named John. And my dad's brother, John, had married a gal named Eileen. The Eileen spelled their name differently, and those two couples were about 30 years apart in age. So when we were going to go visit Eileen and John, I always anticipated the wrong one, and it really messed with me. And then my uncle Dave divorced his wife, Joanne, but then he got remarried to a gal named Joanne. Not confusing at all when you're like three or four years old. I mean, it's just crazy. And so that was what I had growing up with. Well, then climbing a few branches higher on the family tree, I I discover that we've got a a kind of a mixed bag in the lineage. We had a, a lot of teachers, a whole lot of teachers, several farmers, many railroad workers, especially from southern Indiana. But then we also had several alcoholics. Digging into the tree a little bit more, there's a poet, a boxer, a heroic revolutionary war hero, a general, and then there's even an Irish king who was not so heroic and not so noble. And so kind of fun for me, studying the family tree can be intriguing when it's ours. But few of us get too excited about learning about someone else's family tree. Unless it's one of those trivial things you learn about somebody famous. You learn that FDR was related to 11 other presidents. You learn that Teddy Roosevelt was related to 17 other presidents in some way, shape, or form. That's fun, but who really cares, right? My guess is you probably aren't too concerned about my family tree. And that's okay because truth be told, I'm not that interested in yours either. So... Which might be why it's so tempting for us to skip the list of names in Matthew chapter 1. It just seems kind of boring that we come to this genealogy. I mean, why would God have us to start with the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament with a genealogy, a list of names? Why would God do that? Well, it's important for us to remember that God doesn't waste a word that every word of every verse of the entire Bible matters and is important. So let's not give into the temptation to skip the genealogies no matter where they are, no matter when we come to them. Let's not skip the names because those names are important. And what's in a name can be pretty important. Usually the names have great meaning and great significance. There's a story and a life attached to every name on the list in Matthew chapter 1, just like there is for every other name in the Bible, just like there is for every name in your family history. 
And so the author of the Gospel of Matthew was a guy named Matthew. And Matthew was a Jewish guy, and he was a friend, a follower, and a student of Jesus. And he wrote his gospel, his story, his brief narrative of Jesus' life and ministry in hopes to convince and inform other Jewish people that Jesus was the Messiah they had been waiting for for so long. And unlike other religions that have their basis in their history in some mythical legend, Matthew places Jesus in a line of real people from a real time and real places with real stories and real history. We can look into the anthropological evidence. We can look into the um, the historical evidence. We can look into the archaeological evidence, and we can find that these people actually existed. It's rooted in history. Now, some of you, if you're a student of the Bible, you'll take note that the genealogy that Matthew includes is different than Luke's genealogy in his gospel. And the most likely reason for that is that Matthew is probably tracing the lineage through Joseph, and Luke is tracing the genealogy, the lineage through Mary. And what we find with Matthew is that he gives us this broad brush stroke. He's not listing every member of the family tree. In fact, he is giving us just this broad perspective. He ends the genealogy with this. He says, all those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. He's giving us this broad picture saying, listen, I've skipped some names here. I've skipped some generations here. He is giving us these periods of salvation history. So that's how he ends it. But let's look at how Matthew begins this genealogy. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah. Important that he refers to him that way because he'll come back to that. Ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Now, no surprise that a good Jewish guy like Matthew would include David and Abraham. David, the line of kingship from the Messiah. And Abraham, the line of promise, that Abraham was the one that God called from Ur and said, I'm going to take you to the promised land and you will be a blessing to the world. Your descendants will be a blessing to this world and the Messiah will come through you and I will bless the generations after you. In fact, your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. So this genealogy traces to kingship and promise. And then Matthew gets into it. Since Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of the Jewish faith, patriarchs of the Christian faith, big names. But we see here already that there are some crooked branches on the family tree. I mean, Abraham was a great man. He was a man of faith, but he wasn't perfect. He was a guy who was besieged by deceit his own besetting sin. He was deceitful, a liar. And he passed that trait on to his son and his grandson. Judah wouldn't even be on the list if he hadn't committed fraud and pretended to be somebody who he wasn't. And so we see here this crooked family tree. And you would think that God in the lineage of his son, Jesus, the Messiah, would only include the most virtuous, the most righteous people. But far from it, God includes people who are messed up. God includes people whose lives were messy and broken and sinful and morally corrupt and irresponsible. And we might wonder why. Why would God do that? And what we discover as we look through all the Bible and all the people God uses is this truth, that God chooses to use imperfect people to accomplish his perfect purposes. That's how God always does it. And you want to know why? 
Because imperfect people are the only kind of people he has. I mean, you know you're not perfect. I mean, you might not like to admit it to other people, but you know you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. None of us are perfect. The only people God has are imperfect people, so he's always up to using imperfect people to accomplish his perfect purposes. Always, all the time, that's how God operates. So we get back to that story that leads up to the birth of the Messiah. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, this one gets wild. If you're not familiar with this story, let me give you the summary version, because it is crazier than what you'll find on the, the most bizarre reality TV show. Tamar was married to Judah's son, one of his sons. But that son didn't produce a line, and that son committed evil and died because of his evil. So then, as was custom at that time, his brother was to take his deceased brother's wife, take Tamar, and create a family, create offspring to honor his brother. But he didn't want to do that. He says, well, those offspring won't be mine. They'll be my brother's. I'm not going to do that. So he died in his sin. And then, as was custom, Judah, the dad, was supposed to take Tamar, his daughter-in-law, and give her offspring to honor and create this family lineage line. And Judah said, no, I'm not going to do that. And he sent Tamar away and disgraced her and shamed her. And now, that whole thing about how those marriages should happen and who should take who and give the offspring, that sounds pretty wild, weird, crazy, not okay to us. It, it made sense in that culture at that time. There was good reason for it. There was a good explanation for it. I'm glad we don't do that these days, but it made sense in those days. Now, sometime later, Tamar comes back in the picture. She disguises herself as a prostitute. And she ends up with Judah. And she gets pregnant from their encounter. And she makes him promise that he will return to her and, so she, and give her something. So he gives her some of his own personal items to ensure that they're going to be, you know, this reconnection. And then he leaves. Now, sometime after that, Tamar comes on scene. Everybody's saying, oh, hey, this girl, it's, you know, this widow, she's pregnant. Where's baby daddy? She shouldn't be pregnant. And she says, well, Judah, you're baby daddy. It's like, what? No. And then she presents him with the items that he had left with the prostitute. And because she had been disguised, he didn't know who she was. And he realizes, oh, this woman is more righteous than me. That is the lowest bar we find. <laughs> when you're at that level where Judah was, the bar is not too high for righteousness from the way that guy was living. So to say that the woman who disguised herself as a prostitute and deceived him and has now come back around is more righteous, the bar was set pretty low at that point. But I mean, this story is wild, it's crazy, and we see that they are included in the line of Jesus. Now, what's even wilder than that is that modern-day historians have traced the bloodline from Judah and Tamar all the way to the modern-day Kardashian family. <laughs> not really, not at all, but it would answer a lot of questions for us. Moving on. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nishan, Nishan was the father of Salmon, who was kind of a fishy guy. I'm glad you get the dad joke. I'm a dad, you're going to get one of those every once in a while, all right? Samuel was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And again, we get to another story. It gets a little racy here. Now, there's a lot of good we can write into a lot of the names on this story, but I'm going to highlight some of the, the less pretty parts of the story. Rahab? Well, she was a non-Jew. She was, she was a Gentile. And she didn't just pretend to be a prostitute. She was a prostitute. In fact, she was a prostitute, though, who had turned to put her faith in the one and only true God, the God of Israel. 
And so when it came time for Jericho, the city, to be, uh, to be destroyed, God spared her because she had put her faith in God and she had helped God's people. And God grafted her into the family tree. It's a story, it's a testament, a statement of hope to anyone who's tempted to think that your bad choices might be final for your life. When we go on in the story, Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Again, we find a non-Jewish woman, a Gentile person. In fact, Ruth came from the line of the Moabites, and the Moabites were a people whose lineage had begun with incest. And God had said, these people stay away from them. My Jewish people should stay away from that. It's an unclean people. And yet, Ruth had been married in, and then she had been widowed, and she had displayed great faithfulness to her mother-in-law and also to her mother-in-law's God. And so God made an exception and welcomed her into the lineage and into the story. We keep moving on. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David, the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Man, what just those few words tell us. King David, we know King David. David took out Goliath, right? David was the psalmist who wrote so many of the worship songs for the early Jewish people, for God's people. David, the man after God's own heart. David, the murderer, the deceiver, the conniver, the adulterer. David, the one who had gone to his roof when he should have been out to battle with his soldiers. And he saw a woman taking a bath and he looked too long and he peeped. And then he requested her presence in his private quarters in the palace. You know, let's be very clear on this. Bathsheba was not the adulterer. When the king catches you in that situation, cleansing yourself and requests your presence in that way, your options are limited. David was the adulterer, not Bathsheba. And then when he got her pregnant, he had her husband killed. That's a pretty dark story. That's a pretty ugly stretch for the man who was after God's own heart. And yet, it's written into the story of Jesus. We go on to their son, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Solomon, not a whole lot different than his dad. The apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Solomon, his besetting sin was he was a womanizer. He married hundreds of foreign women who worshipped pagan gods. And he welcomed them into the palace and into God's people. And he allowed them to spread their false religions. Idolatry reached an all-time high under Solomon. Solomon, one of the wisest men, perhaps the wisest man to have ever lived, given that gift by God. But just because God gives you a gift doesn't mean you're going to use it. The wise man acted in very foolish ways at times. We move on. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram was the father of Uzziah, and Jehoram, a murderer who killed six of his brothers to ensure that they would not threaten his reign as king, killed his brothers to cling to the title. Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and again, there's a lot of things we could say that are positive here, but we're just... Moving through, there's 42 names on the list. We're not going to take time for all of them. You don't want to be here that long today. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon, and Manasseh was an evil man. A man who sacrificed his own son in the fire of worship 
to false gods because he was dabbling with sorcery. And he's on the list. A guy who sacrificed his son in a fire to a false god is on the list of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. What? I mean, we just, we keep going to the stories that we find here. I said, if you skipped over the genealogy, you've missed some good stuff. If you think the Bible doesn't have anything interesting to say, have you listened? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's better than your raciest TV shows. I mean, it's there. So much interesting. We skipped down the list, going to the end. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. I mean, isn't that what it's all about, Jesus? It all funnels down to him. We have his name at the beginning, his name at the end of the list. It's all about him. But we find another woman here, Mary. Mary, a Jewish woman. Matthew, writing this genealogy, I, I'm always struck by the prominence of women in this genealogy. At a time when women would not have been included in any other system, there's this deliberate nod, this affirmation of women. And Mary, this woman who those Jewish people would have known, oh, the girl who was pregnant before she got married and her hubby wasn't the daddy. Oh, that girl? And maybe by the inclusion of some of the other people on that list, prostitutes and Gentile women, women who were abused and taken advantage of and hurt, women who were widowed and neglected and remained faithful and how God had redeemed and restored the story of all of them to write them into the lineage and write them into the story. And by doing that, he's giving a nod here to Mary that maybe there's more than what these people had originally noticed with her story. Maybe there is something about this Messiah that she had claimed of. The Messiah. After all, that's what it's all about. It's what the story is all about. But Messiah, Jesus, I mean, we have this name. What's in a name? Well, why does this name matter? Well, when the angel appeared to Mary, he told her, give him the name Jesus, which means God saves. God saves. That's what his name means. And when that angel appeared to Joseph and said, hey, Joseph, Mary's not making it up. The God child is the child in her and you're going to name him Emmanuel, God with us, because he will save his people from their own sins. And that's what's in that name. The name that we will praise forever. That's what's in the name. It's one who saves his people from their sins. At the time of Jesus' birth, there were a lot of people who were longing for the Messiah to come, anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. They had 400 years of silence from hearing from God, and all of a sudden, God shows up on the scene with this little baby. But what they wanted from a Messiah was different. Many of them had twisted the purpose of what they wanted from a Messiah. They didn't want a Messiah to save them from their sins. They wanted a Messiah to save them from everything except their own sins, from whatever was out there. They were looking for a Messiah to save them from poverty, to save them from Roman occupation and government taxation. They wanted to be saved from oppressive kings from corrupt religion, from terrible disease. Church, does that sound familiar? Does that sound like maybe the world we live in today still? Disease and corruption and poverty and taxation. It's always easier to think we need saving from whatever's out there, from whatever's coming at us. That 
was always the case for them. The Israelites had this story, this sordid history of telling God, we will be faithful, we love you, we will follow you, and immediately disobeying God and turning from him. And so God would discipline them. And many times to discipline, he would raise up another people to come in and invade them to get their attention, to turn them back to the true king himself. But whenever that would happen, they would always say, no, no, our worst enemy is the invading army. But they missed it because their worst enemy was always themselves. It's always themselves. Their greatest need is the same as our greatest need. They needed to be saved from their sins. Just like you and I need saving from our sins. Not from what's out there, but from what's right in here. We do well to remember that all of us are deeply susceptible to sin. Apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome reminds us that all have sinned. Every single one of us has sinned. There's no exception. There's no exclusion. All of us are sinful people. And we have missed God's glory And because of that, we need his grace. We need his grace. You know, in this age of self-esteem, that is not a popular notion to say that we have sin. It's not popular to say that others have sin. It's not even popular to say that we ourselves have sin. To to admit and confess that I have this ugly sin side, that that just doesn't go well these days. And, And it gets tougher and tougher to admit that my sinful nature still enjoys sin, even after decades of following Jesus, even as a preacher, I'm just gonna be honest with you, my sinful nature still enjoys sin. And listen, if you're a sinful person and you're not enjoying it, you're just not doing it right. <clears throat> sin is fun for a season until it's not, until you get on the other side of it and you realize, ooh, not worth it, not good, not okay. Listen, if you're not enjoying it, I can give you pointers, but it's not good for your soul, so I won't. It's always easier to look at other people. It's always easier to spot the sin in somebody else than it is in ourselves. Always. Here's a letter a child wrote to Santa. It says, Dear Santa, in our home we have three boys. Jeffrey is two, David is five, and Norman is seven. Jeffrey is good some of the time. David is good part of the time, sometimes. But Norman, he's always good all the time. You want to guess who wrote that letter? Signed, love, Norman. You know it. Because it's always easier to see the sin in somebody else than it is in ourselves, right? It's always easier to think we need saving for something out there than it is right here. We can recognize sin in others. It's tough to acknowledge it in ourselves. It's no wonder the Bible tells us that we need the Holy Spirit to help expose the sin in our lives, to help us see it, and then to deal with it and move beyond it as we turn to God and turn from our sin and turn to God. But even that word sin has fallen out of fashion these days. Our society has worked so hard to make the word sin seem archaic and outdated and old-fashioned and even wrong and rude and not okay. Our society has worked hard to say sin. Oh, no, no, you can't talk about that. Everybody's okay. We're all good. It's just a matter of perspective. I mean, there's several churches, way too many, that don't even use the word sin these days, unless, unless they're talking about social ills or environmental problems. Those are the only sins will speak of. Always easier to think we need saving from something out there. Been in the church world for a while now. I see this in the church. A lot of times I'll hear people, for years I've heard people say to preachers, preacher, tell us how evil the world is. Tell us how bad it is out there. Tell us of all the wrong done out there. 
Don't talk to us about ourselves, right? Talk to us about that, them. Because it's so much easier to do that. Usually that's in a way to help us feel better about our own perceived righteousness. The only problem is God doesn't give us that opportunity. Now let's be clear. The world is broken. It is evil. It has fallen. It is wicked. There is sin replete around us. But that's the easy sermon. That's the easy message. That's the one we all know. I mean, all you got to do is turn on the news or just get in your car, go for a drive, go Christmas shopping. You'll see it. <laughs> You'll see the sin of other people. You'll see how mean and nasty and evil and broken this world is. That's, that's the easy one. God says, no, no, we don't begin there, though. It begins in a mirror. God never gives his people a pass. In fact, this is God's word to his people. If my people, he says, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Turning from their wicked ways, the word for that is repentance. It's a word we find in the New Testament. It simply means to turn away from our wrong and turn back to God. And we turn from our wickedness and turn to God by praying and seeking his face and humbling ourselves. You know, it says, if you do that, then I'll hear from heaven, and I will forgive. I'll forgive their sins, and I'll restore their land. And that's not spoken to a nation as an entity. That's spoken to the people of God. Because it begins right here. Always easier to think we need saving for something out there. But it begins right here. And for God is always willing to forgive always but the doorway to that forgiveness is our repentance is us turning from our sin admitting that we have sin and in the power of the holy spirit acknowledging we need the spirit's help that we need god's help to turn to him from our own ways and to turn back to him and humble ourselves that is the doorway to forgiveness that is the pathway to holiness and god is calling his people to repentance first so that through his people he can call the world to repentance and salvation. That's God's plan. And, and repentance, it's not a one and done kind of thing. You know, we, we talk of baptism a lot here, and, and we use the phrase, repent, be baptized, and be saved. Sometimes when we talk of it that way, I, I wonder if we miss, it's, the repent is an ongoing, continue to do this kind of thing, repentance. The forgiveness from God for salvation comes once, but ongoing forgiveness, I mean, we gotta cling to that. To, to be made holy, to grow in our faith, to draw near to God is a process of continually being made to look like Christ, of Christ being formed in us, of us repenting and surrendering. See, the moment we stop repenting, we've stopped surrendering. And the moment we stop surrendering, we're really done following. And that's a very dangerous place for anyone to be. Our Christmas teaching series is called Colors of Christmas. So far in the series, we've looked at the red of anger, the green of envy, the blue of sadness, but today we're talking about white, a white Christmas. And, and that's an easy color to associate with Christmas because most everybody wants a white Christmas. We, we would love to wake up Christmas morning and see the beautiful white snow blanketing our yards and on our trees, stay off the roads, melt in a day, give us you know, 70 degrees sunshine the day after Christmas. But for Christmas morning, we want some, some white. We want some snow. And 
you know, easy songs to associate with that. I mean, Bing Crosby's White Christmas, perhaps the most famous Christmas song ever. Didn't Jonathan do a great job with that earlier? I mean, that was so fun. What a great way. And we love that because we want the White Christmas, right? Bing did such a good job with that back in the day that before digital recordings, they sold so many copies, they wore out the master recording to that song. They had to have Bing come back into the studio and re-record it to keep selling that. That's how popular that song was. That's how much we want a white Christmas. And from God's perspective, white has everything to do with the birth of Jesus. Isaiah, the prophet, says, though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. What a beautiful picture there. Though your sin is scarlet. In biblical times, scarlet stain was a stain. It, 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 this, when you dyed something red, it stayed red. There was no bleach to get it out to remove it. It was permanent. It was forever. You stained it scarlet, it was there. So when Isaiah says this, you know, your stained scarlet sin will be made white as snow, not just a lesson in contrast, what he's doing is saying your stain is a permanent sin stain on your life. It's going to remain forever. It won't fade. It won't go away. We would like to think of it as just a moment in time that we can move beyond, but it's not like that. This past year, my wife and I painted one of the rooms in our home, painted a a deep, dark, rich blue color. It's a beautiful color. I was a little nervous. It's pretty dark. I was like, man, is that right? But once it got on the walls and next to the white, it looks beautiful. My wife did a good job picking it out. But somewhere along the line of that process of painting, that, that bucket of paint got knocked over. And that deep, rich, dark blue spilled out onto our light beige carpet. <laughs> yeah, you laugh because it didn't happen to you. <laughs> And no, got gonna name the names of who knocked it over, but it got knocked over, and this it was there, and so it got cleaned up, kind of as best we could. We cleaned and we cleaned and we cleaned and we scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed and vacuumed and and shampooed the carpet. And you you want to know what happened to that carpet? It now has a light blue stain on it, slightly hidden by this nice rug on top of the carpet. But still, at times when I'm walking past the scene of the crime, I'll bend down, I lift up that carpet, I see the stain underneath the stain is remaining that carpet has been cleaned and cleaned and washed and washed and washed but the stain remains and isaiah says that is what your sin is like you clean as much as you want but you you can't get rid of it it's not coming out you might lighten it a little bit it's not going away you can't do enough good to get rid of it you can't grow old and leave it in the past You, you can't move away from it and move to a new town and leave your sin behind your sin follows you it's stained it's there what isaiah says is your sin is serious and it's permanent and it stains you and the only thing that'll take it away is the forgiveness of god the only thing that's going to wash you clean is god that's it it's the only way you know god will God will blanket your life with forgiveness, like a beautiful, fresh snow at Christmas time, covering a muddy field. But you don't have to wonder if that's going to melt away, because it won't. God's forgiveness is permanent and lasting and complete. And it doesn't just cover over it, it washes away, it cleanses us. You know, when Matthew, Jesus' friend, was recording this genealogy, 
And after the genealogy, he gets into the story of the birth of Jesus. And he, and he writes these words that Jesus will save his people from their sins. I wonder if Matthew just had to scoop back from the table to that point and take a deep breath. I, I bet he was choked up because he knew the truth of that and the power of that in his own life. Forget anybody else. But I bet in a moment of reflection and choking up, he, he had this smile. I just imagine this smile coming across his face of how beautiful that truth was. And he just went back to telling the story of his friend. See, Matthew was a guy who had gone all in with Jesus and he gave up everything to follow him. When Jesus called and said, Matthew, you want to follow me? When Jesus made the invitation, Matthew went full in and he left it all behind. Now, Matthew's too humble to tell us that he is the kind of guy to go all in with Jesus. We have to learn that part of his story from other Bible writers. What Matthew does tell us in his humility about himself is that he was a tax collector. Let me unpack that for you. Matthew essentially says, listen, I was a despicable guy. I took advantage of my own people and I sold them out. And they lived in poverty and they lived in hardship and I lived large and I got in good with the oppressive people and I was doing fine and I was living big off of their little. Matthew essentially says, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And I love it because he didn't minimize his sin. But nor did he run from his Savior. He fully embraced his Savior. And friend, the path that Matthew took is a path that you and I need to take as well. To fully own our sin and to fully embrace our Savior. No matter if we are brand new to this Jesus saying or we've been doing it for a long time, to fully own our sin and fully embrace our Savior. And some of you, you need a wider Christmas this year. You need to lean into repentance. For some of you, that's not an ongoing spiritual habit, and it needs to be. So I want to encourage you to text the word white to 502-289-1387. You pull out your phone, you do it right now. And this is going to link you to a reading plan. It's about a week long, and it's going to give you some devotional thoughts for each day. It's going to give you some Bible verses for each day. And it's going to give you some verses to read and to meditate on and to pray on. And it's going to direct you to turn to God and away from sin and to practice repentance and to lean into the forgiveness that God has for us. You know, the stories of the people in that genealogy are laced with messiness. And it's, it's crazy messy. Consequences from their sins and, and just, just dysfunction. But the beauty in all that is that we find this truth that God intends the gospel of Jesus for sinners. I'm going to say that differently. God intends the gospel for people like you and me. And to fully embrace the gospel and to fully experience the beauty of God's forgiveness, we need to lean into the white of his cleansing and we do that through repentance. And if you're not sure what repentance looks like in your life, I just want to direct you to Galatians chapter five. I don't have a slide for this one, so I'm just going to invite you to go there. You can go there on your Bible app. You go there, just make a note. Galatians 5. And there you'll find these two lists juxtaposed. The deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And in the deeds of the flesh you'll find things like drunkenness and carousing and sexual immorality and anger and on and on. And in the fruit of the spirit you'll find things like love and joy, peace, patience and kindness and gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And a good way to determine what you need to repent of is just look at the deeds of the flesh. If you see that in your life, like, yeah, I should probably stop that. And you own that. And you confess it to God and you confess it to another brother or sister in the faith. 
and you claim God's forgiveness, and you let him know that by his spirit, you don't want to go that way anymore. Or you just look at the fruit of the spirit and you say, man, I'm supposed to be loving. Are the people I'm not showing much love to? Because guess what? We're supposed to show love to all of them. So man, there are people I've not been very gentle with. The place I've not been patient. I'm supposed to be self-controlled. Have I had moments where I've lost control? And then you acknowledge that and you own it. And you embrace your Savior who forgives you. And you trust him to lead you in a new path, in a new way. So friend, let me ask, are there some questionable choices and sketchy behavior in your past? Because you don't have to be held jeopardy by your family tree, but nor do you have to be held jeopardy by your own mistakes. Have you deceived others, even those closest to you? Have you minimized your sin and maximized somebody else's to make yourself feel better? Have you cheated someone for your own game? Are there beds that you should not have been in? I'd be a terrible spokesman for God if I told you that those things don't matter. They do. They matter a lot. Our sin matters. You know as well as anyone that it matters. But we also know that the message is not that we escape all the consequence of our sin, but that there is a God who knows all about our sin. He knew all of the sin of all the people in that genealogy, and he wrote them into the story anyway. And he knows all about your sin, and he knows all about my sin. And he's willing to write us into the story and to write a better next chapter continually for you and for me if we'll allow him. And repentance is the doorway to that, the doorway to his forgiveness, the pathway to our holiness, and the pathway to freedom. You know, we sing a lot of songs around here, songs that I love, some old, some new, songs that direct our gaze, our attention, and our praise to the King of glory. But today, there's an old song that comes to mind. It's an old hymn called Whiter Than Snow. Just seems fitting, seems appropriate for this sermon and this time of year. And some of you know that song very well. And you're going to want to sing it with me in a moment. And it's okay, you can mutter those words as we go along. But I just want you to hear these words and to make them your prayer today. I'm going to use that old song to guide our prayer at this time. Church, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we long to be perfectly whole. And we want you forever to live in our souls. So break down every idol and cast out every foe. And wash us, Jesus, make us whiter than snow. Lord Jesus, let nothing unholy remain. Apply your own blood and extract every stain. To get this blessed cleansing, all things we forgo, wash us. Jesus, and we'll be whiter than snow. Lord Jesus, look down from your throne in the skies and help us to make a complete sacrifice. We give up ourselves, whatever we own. Wash us and make us whiter than snow. Lord Jesus, for this, we most humbly entreat. We wait, blessed Lord, at your crucified feet. And by faith for our cleansing, we see your blood flow as you wash us and make us whiter than snow. So Lord Jesus, you see how we patiently wait. So come now and within us a new heart create. To those who seek you, you've never said no. Jesus, thank you for washing us, making us whiter than snow. 
and all of God's people. Pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.